Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and enabling biotechs to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome David Esposito, CEO of ONL Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, David. Hey, Rahul. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being on the podcast. Of course. So David, to kick us off, would love if you could set the stage and just talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. No, I appreciate the question. So I can't believe I'm saying I'm a 30-year life science veteran, but it's been that long time flies. But I started my career early, uh, went to school in the United States Military Academy at West Point. So I was in the active duty army for a while. And then when I transitioned out, started out my career with Merck on the big pharma side in commercial roles. Started out as a sales rep selling Timolol for uh, to ophthalmologists. And I'm sure we'll talk to it about O&L. But basically, over the course of about 15, 16 years with Merck, variety of sales, marketing, commercial strategy roles, the, the typical big company journey of sales back into headquarters, back out to sales management, back into headquarters over the course of about 15, 16 years. Got good fundamental background on the big company sales, marketing, commercial strategy work. Made a big change after 15 years and bounced around the country in a variety of different roles to move to Michigan, where we are today with O&L, to run and begin this journey into early mid-stage life science companies. Ran a diagnostics business that was a spin out from what became a number of mergers in the pharma industry of Pharmacy and Upjohn to then Pfizer and Pharmacia. And it was a Pharmacia Diagnostics, a chance to run that business. It was private equity funded business. We ended up scaling that business and selling that to Thermo Fisher Scientific. And that kind of kicked off probably the last 10 years of my career and much more early mid-stage. I had a chance to start up a cancer diagnostics company. And then now with O&L, been about five years with O&L and we're a preclinical company. Now we're in the clinic and a couple different clinical trials. So my journey started in big pharma and then moved into more early and mid-stage life sciences. And through the course of that, had a couple of successful journeys, so to speak, in terms of exits, but also took a couple companies into some painful wind-down modes, which was just a helpful learning for me in that journey. Yeah. And David, speaking of learnings, if you were to reflect back on the early parts of your career, I'm curious what impact being in the Army had on the early stage of your career. And now, given where you are, if you ever reflect back and think about, oh, yeah, even being CEO a couple of times around, this is what I have taken away from that experience. Sure. I appreciate that. I think it was that journey of, of being at West Point in active duty in the Army. I served in Desert Shield and Storm, the first Gulf War as well. And so those experiences are foundational to me, certainly as a human and as a leader. And I think those principles around, I was an infantryman, so leading from the front, setting example for others to follow, those kind of foundational leadership frameworks really helped carry me through my corporate career as well, I think was just good foundational experience. And I think beyond that, the Army taught me and certainly the infantry that, you know, the plan never survives that first shot or that first game plan. So even in that corporate world, that we got to be prepared to be flexible based on the data points in front of you. And I think that ability to adapt 
regroup, figure out directionally where you want to go. Those were some really good early learnings that I think looking back on my career served me well over the last 30 years in corporate world. Great, David. And now you've been CEO a couple of times. I'm curious how your approach to being CEO has changed from the first time around to this time around. And if you'd be willing to share some of your own evolution of your mental model in terms of what leadership looks like at that level. Sure. Really thoughtful question. So maybe a couple things. Growing up in a big company at, at Merck for a number of years, you certainly get a sense of corporate leadership, setting strategy, communicating that, you know, empowering people, managing performance, all those things that were super helpful to round out maybe some of the rough edges of my uh, military leadership experience. But I think over the last 15 years, in early and mid-stage, leadership takes on much more of a personal accountability in an early and mid-stage company where in large companies, certainly you're accountable for leadership, but there's a lot of support networks and guidance and HR guidance and legal guidance and all of that. When you get into early and mid-stage, you're building a leadership and a culture that's really defined by how you lead and operate. And so that personal ownership and accountability, not just for your own impact, but the scaling of an organization is something that I've really taken to heart. And you feel like you're out there building and leading, which is a little bit different than some of the larger companies. And I think it just, not that your principles change, but your application sometimes of those principles may change in the early stage. Yeah, certainly resonates there, David. would love if we could switch gears now. And you've been in the ophthalmology space for quite some time. Talk to us about where ophthalmology is as a whole, as a therapeutic area, what you've seen that's changed regarding ophthalmology in the last five to 10 years. And then more specifically, if you could educate us around dry AMD and and GA and the opportunities you see there. Sure. It's always been a core area of focus for some of the larger pharmaceutical companies in terms of the ophthalmology market. But You've seen, and we've all seen probably over the last 10 to 15 years, some of the big players come in and out of ophthalmology. And I think what's been interesting is it's very purposeful work for those that are in there. When you do some research on patient journeys, oncology and cancer gets its own level of weight, but you realize people really fear going blind. And the ability to develop therapeutics for that ophthalmology space has always been a massive unmet need and I think found a lot of resources to do it. And I would say over the last 10 or 15 years, you still see some of the smaller inherited uh, retinal degeneration type, very niche, small markets, orphan drugs, still getting a lot of interest in ophthalmology, which has been exciting, certainly for a patient benefit standpoint. But over the last few years, certainly Let's say even in the last decade, there's been a lot of research towards what you just indicated in dry age-related macular degeneration or the earlier form or the more severe later stage form of geographic atrophy that most recently now the markets changed where there was never an approved therapy to treat patients with geographic atrophy up until this year, 2023. So the year of 2023 saw two FDA approvals of complement inhibitor therapies, the companies Apellis and then Iveric Bio. That has transformed really not only the lives of those patients, but I think excitingly for the industry in ophthalmology to say, this is now a potential another 
patient population of multiple millions globally and billions of dollars potentially that has got a lot of excitement in the market again, that this is now some therapies that are making a difference. And now a massive population that could be aided by those therapies and those to come. So I think over the course of what amounts to a few decades, ophthalmology has always been an important sector of the market. Some of the bigger players have come in and out, but now more recently with the approval of these therapies for GA, there's a lot of interest from capital markets, a lot of interest from the large players. And fundamentally, it gets pretty inspiring to think about millions of patients now can potentially have a benefit from some of these therapies. Yeah, said David. And I think running ophthalmology programs have their own complexity that many may not be aware of. I'm curious, through the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, did your approach to running either preclinical programs or clinical programs change at all, given what we went through during the pandemic? It's a good question. So I think we're all trying to grab the learnings and turn the page quite quickly from some of those uh, painful times. But you know, in our journey of getting into the clinic at ONL Therapeutics, we started our first in human trials across three indications in Australia and New Zealand. And so that created its own level of complexity, even pre-pandemic. But we had just started our first trial in the throes prior to COVID, and then COVID started in early 2020, where Australia saw some of the most strict lockdowns across the world. And so I think with regards to ophthalmology and the need to have very sophisticated equipment to assess things like visual field or GA lesion growth and fundus autofluorescent photographs, all of those created some challenges that quite frankly couldn't be worked around without getting people back into the clinic. So it certainly slowed our progress in the clinic. I think going forward, we're a little bit more nimble in terms of assessments of patients on how we can do some of those things remotely. But quite frankly, in the field of ophthalmology, which made it quite challenging where perhaps we were not just an at-home blood pressure monitor to give you a sense of where you are, you really needed to get into the clinic for some sophisticated testing. That was a challenge. And it, it certainly put, I'd say, nine to 15 months delay in some of our programs. And I think we got some efficiencies out of it, but it was a tough journey for us, no doubt about it. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora, talent optimized. David, now with that great background around ophthalmology and specifically the two indications that you're pursuing, I'd love if you could talk to us now about where ONL is from a development perspective and what your approach is to these two indications. Sure. So I'll give the just a quick background. So in ONL, our lead compound and our focus of our work is around a receptor called the FAS receptor, FAS. The FAS receptor is a cell surface receptor on retinal cells. Then in the course of eye disease, whether glaucoma, age-related macrodegeneration, retinal detachment, that receptor is activated 
triggers the death of the retinal cell and a subsequent inflammatory cascade that brings about more death of the retina. So our focus is on developing therapeutics that block that receptor. Our lead compound, ONL1204, is delivered via intravitrally injection. So an IVT injection in the eye, which for folks that may not be super familiar with ophthalmology, it's commonplace in conditions with wet AMD, but not everybody likes to talk about getting injections in the eye. But anyway, our therapeutic is injected in the eye and blocks that receptor, the FAST receptor. And so we're actually in three clinical programs. One is acute and two is chronic. So the one acute program is retinal detachment. We actually have a phase two study that's ongoing and will report top line results in the spring of next year. So April or May of next year. And then we have two phase 1B programs, one in glaucoma and one in dry age-related macular degeneration or the advanced form of GA. That data continues to look good. And so where we stand today in our development, top-line results in retinal detachment in the spring, we're now preparing to run a registrational study in geographic atrophy in the early part of next year, in 24, and then in 25, we'll be in a phase two study in open-angle glaucoma. So we've made good progress in the clinic, and we think ultimately that mechanism of action of blocking the FAST receptor is very well differentiated and could really provide benefit across a number of eye diseases. Wonderful. And David, as you think about the ophthalmology market as a whole, I know you mentioned the unmet medical need and how VCs are now coming around to that. I always felt it was one of those therapeutic areas that tended to be left behind for no obvious reason. What's exciting you about this next generation of drug development that's happening across ophthalmology? And also, what are some of the challenges that we should be aware of? Sure. I think what's super exciting and and getting a lot of attention is unique mechanisms of action, first in class, there seem to have a great deal of excitement, always have and seem to be now in the field of ophthalmology. I think where we're seeing funding from either venture firms or strategic partnerships, people really want and organizations really want to fund innovation. And selfishly, we see that exciting on Orion because we have a unique mechanism of action inhibiting the FAST receptor. But many of these diseases that we're participating in, things like glaucoma, I mentioned earlier, I was a beta blocker drop salesman for Merck way back when. The focus on lowering intraocular pressure in glaucoma hasn't fundamentally changed in 40 plus years, whether it's now therapeutics or surgery. And so I think what's exciting is about mechanisms that are independent of IOP lowering to improve glaucoma. Very similar to my comments on geographic atrophy, now that by these innovative companies of Apellus and Iberic Bio that have created the pathway for approval for geographic atrophy, now it seems like the excitement is moving beyond what these products have and inhibiting the complement pathway to look for different mechanisms of action. And so not just us, there are others out there that I think are really beginning to present what could be the next generation of variety of classes of therapeutics to really support managing a slow path to blindness, which hasn't been well effectively treated over the years. I think maybe the challenges I'd just say to the back end of your question are really the flip side of how exciting it is for new mechanisms of action. The challenge is 
proving out that those mechanisms of actions are safe and well tolerated. I think if there's pushback, we get an early stage in raising capital. As new mechanisms of action sound great, everybody likes to think about those, but then they are unproven. <laughs> and so they are new. And so the ability to find that threshold of what is safe enough to move into advanced therapies or, or advanced clinical trials is always tough. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, David. Given how many opportunities there are in ophthalmology, I'm curious how your approach and framework for indication selection has evolved, particularly within the context of, let's say, IRA and how you're thinking about or what advice you would provide folks as they think through indication selection in this new post-IRA world. Great point. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act has there's some people writing about it and getting some air around it, but not everybody is. And it has a fundamental impact on how we think about clinical development and certainly how the real big players think about clinical development. So on our side, as I described the three programs we have, one is an acute indication for retinal detachment. It has an orphan designation in the U.S., so it's obviously a small market. And then we're also pursuing indications in geographic atrophy and open-angle glaucoma, which are multiples of millions of patients, not only in the U.S., but globally. The acute indication of retinal detachment has been our lead indication. Now, what's in place with the Inflation Reduction Act, the guidance used to be, or the direction used to be strategically, boy, go small, early, get to market, figure things out, and then expand your portfolio. Establish a beachhead and expand your portfolio. Now, with the IRA in place, it does seem to be, and certainly many of the big players are talking about indication sequence to really go big and big indications early because of the Inflation Reduction Act is your first commercial entry. The clock starts ticking on that roundabout nine-year runway before some significant price controls come in. So it has all fundamentally changed our approach because reflective of how the big players, big strategics will think, is then reflected into how VCs want to fund. And mm. so where we are today is a good program into phase two and retinal detachment and acute indication, but quite rapidly we're accelerating development into the chronic indications to set up our development programs to have those hit the market first before, at least in the U.S., before the smaller acute indication. And that's also, of course, if everything works out successfully, which we hope it will, but you never know. Yeah, certainly. And David, now we're recording this towards the end of 2023. It's been quite the interesting year for biotechs as it relates to the capital market. And you hit on the interplay between big pharma and earlier stage biotechs. And then obviously now IRA added to that fabric. Talk to us about how you think about partnerships given the current capital environment and how your approach has evolved as well. Sure. So I think it's always tough raising capital. We're talking about a $100 million raise to run a large global registrational study in GA. This is not small ball by any means. And so it's always been tough. But I think the last couple of years, it's been especially tough within the biotech markets from venture funding. And so you know, I think we're continuing to pursue that. But what's been an interesting dynamic from the bigger players in the market Typically, they were looking to maybe move into an early stage biotech company a little bit later, maybe picking up a phase three trial or even waiting until phase three completions before moving. I think what we've seen 
to date is the bigger players are interested in spaces like ophthalmology and coming in earlier. So on our side, on O&L, we have engaged several strategics around some partnership programs. We've had some financing from some of the big players, which has really been helpful to us because not only does that partnership come with some financial support, but usually comes with clinical development support, a few smart, experienced folks around the table helping. So we found at least an approach that strikes a bit of a happy medium with both venture-funded development programs that are also supported by strategics as well. And there's always a tough, tough decision on navigating when to bring in a strategic player. I think it all that gets into the debate on how much rights do you give away versus what you have. And I've just found in doing this for a number of years that there's always a right time to engage both VCs and strategics. And that's always because you never know where the markets are and where others are playing. And I think we found a nice balance with that, and I think that's the way we're approaching it now. It's supportive of a number of different aspects to move the programs forward. Yeah. And when dealing with strategics and obviously keeping the best interest of your own company at heart, any advice you could provide in terms of, let's say, threading that needle of listening to strategics as they may be potential acquirers, but also staying on the right course for O&L? Great question, I'd say. Unfortunately, I don't have a real clear black and white answer to that only because it is in an early stage biotech, you deal with a lot of variables. One is just practically runway. What's the cost of capital today? What are the program lengths you want to do? But I would say strategically, we are trying, and I think both venture firms and strategics are all aligned around trying to accelerate as fast as possible therapeutics into the clinic to really find out whether they are going to be safe and effective to make a difference for patients. That guidance has always been helpful. And I think in terms of determining how to thread that needle, I think quite frankly, it does get to the team, hopefully that knows the technology, the product, the development plan best, is outlining a base case as to what they see can move going forward. And at times you get alignment with a strategic that Likes that base case makes sense, maybe provide some input, maybe you adjust the plan, but also you hear that from a venture group. And I think at the end of the day, seated at the table and reacting, quite frankly, to term sheets that can help drive the decision is very helpful. And I think in the ideal scenario, the team makes the base case, get a little input from a variety of stakeholders. And at the end of the day, how can we optimize a deal to get the work done? is what we want to do. And I've at least learned in my career, sometimes that takes hold of a strategic partner quicker versus having a venture. But then other times it's a venture that helps lead through that. And I think with a good board and advisors, you usually land in a good spot that way. I think at the end of the day, in our world, you got to get a deal done to get the capital to run the programs. David, this has been a great conversation. You have quite a unique background for someone that's been on the podcast previously, given your army background, then working in big pharma, and then over to small biotechs. I'm sure you've learned a lot along the way. Knowing all that you now know, what's one piece of advice you wish you could have provided your younger self? Well, that was a good question. I think the one piece of advice is that there never is a straight line on a career path and a journey. You know, when I joined the industry and left active duty and joined Merck, big pharma was one of their premier 
Fortune 500, just wonderful journeys. And having started my career there, I think most of the thinking was, boy, you get with a nice, really big company and have a wonderful 30 plus year career with that big company. And my younger self, I would whisper in the ear now and say, you know what? It's never really that straight line. The industry changes, technologies evolve, the marketplace changes. You got to be prepared to deal with those inevitable changes to, to navigate at least what's been true to me, a, a purposeful view of life science and the industry I want to be a part of, but also a sense that, you know what, things are going to change over time and you got to be prepared to learn and grow through those changes. So I think maybe that'd be something I'd whisper into the ears, despite my parents and I'm sure everybody's parents' wishes that their child gets with a good company and has a nice long career. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point, David. David, thank you so much for joining us today, for educating us on the ophthalmology landscape and for sharing a bit about your own personal experience and wishing you and the wonderful ONL team continued success. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing from your audience down the road. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.